Thank you. So, as some of you might know, there, there's an English novel that was written in the late 19th century. It's called The Little Lord Fauntleroy. And uh, it was also made into a very sweet movie uh, that I've seen a couple of times. And it's the story of a young boy who is uh, from America, but he finds out that he's actually the heir to a rich lord in England. And so he inherits, you know, a lot of um, property, a lot of wealth. And so he goes and he meets his grandfather and he learns to find out that he has the ability now that he can just get on a horse and just ride around the property as much as he wants. He also has the ability now to tell servants what they can do and what they can't do. And he also learns that he has the ability to give a young boy who's really poor and he has he doesn't have very good crotch, um, crotches for his, for his illness, and so he just um, gets him a new pair of, of crotches. And he also extends uh, the, the time period that one of the farmers has to pay his debt to the Lord. And all these things, this, this little Lord Fauntleroy is only able to do because he has been given authority. When he became the heir, and when it became known that he was going to be the heir to this Lord, he inherited a lot of authority. And all these things that he is able to do are connected to the fact that he has authority. And in the text that we'll be looking at tonight, we also see authority. We see authority that has been given to Jesus. And specifically, we see that Jesus, who is presented to us as the Son of Man, He has been given authority to forgive sins. Jesus has been given authority to forgive sins. So look with me in Matthew 9. We'll be looking at the first eight verses in Matthew chapter 9 tonight. We'll read about this authority that was given to Jesus. And the Word of God in Matthew 9, verses 1 through 8, says this, And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Let us pray. Thank you, Father, for this evening and for your word. I just pray now that you would teach us, that you would correct me where where I'm wrong, and that you would speak through me as a messenger of your word to your people. In Jesus' name. So before we look into the specifics of the story, I want to just set us up with a little bit of the the context that we find this passage in. In the book of Matthew, 
the first four chapters are just something like a very long extended introduction. We see that Jesus is presented to us as the one Messiah that the Old Testament is pointing towards. We see Jesus presented as this Messiah, the Savior. And that is in the first four chapters. And in chapter 4, verse 23, that is, after this introduction is done, it's like a little bridge between passages. Matthew tells us that Jesus then went around all throughout Galilee, and he was teaching the people, he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and he was also healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And then in the chapters that follow, so as I said, this is like a, a bridge statement talking about what Jesus would do, the teaching, the proclaiming. And in verses, in chapters 5 through 7, we see what this teaching looks like in more detail. These chapters are the very well-known Sermon on the Mount. And that's a very specific teaching lesson that we hear about, um, some of the very basic things that Jesus teaches the people. And then it also mentioned that it's talking about these diseases and these sicknesses that Jesus heals. And that's what we then see in the chapters 8 and 9, and that's where we find our passage tonight is among those other healing stories that Jesus, um, these, these healings that Jesus performs. But also note that there is a response that follows to these stories. We see different reactions and, and followed or following this story is a story where Jesus goes to Matthew and he calls him into his discipleship. So we see also that these stories are not just stories that happen for no good reason, but these are stories that call people to a response. And we see how some of these people respond by following Jesus. And as I mentioned, chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, that is one of those healing stories that, that are especially in the chapters 8 and 9. And before we look into a story as this one, we want to make sure that we, we do understand the, the Word of God rightly. We do want to make sure that we approach the text in a way that it is faithful to the Word of God and that we make sure that we understand it correctly. And so when we approach a text as this one, we can easily think, well, I'm not, not really sure what exactly you know, all these specifics mean and what this text is telling me, but, but this strikes me. This part of it really strikes me. Or maybe it's this over here where you think, well, I don't know what this is all about, but this really speaks to me right now. And so you're just applying um, what, what you can call this whatever strikes me hermeneutics to the Bible. And you might, you might focus all on the guys who bring the paralytic on the bed, and you might start thinking about how it's you know, very important to bring your friends to Jesus. Or you, as we know from, from the account in Mark, they, you know, they go on the roof and they open up the roof and they let the man down from the roof. And you might, say, you might start saying, well, if there's something like a roof in the way or a door that's between Jesus and me, I'm just going to break that roof down. I'm going to break that door down. And that's what this passage is teaching me. But what I want to suggest to you, even though I think these things are true, I think if there's something in the way between you and Jesus, you break that wall down. And if you want your friends, your loved ones to come to Jesus, you go and tell them, tell them about Him. But what I want to suggest to you is that that's not what this 
passage is teaching us. That's not at the core of this passage. And as I mentioned before in a sermon that I've preached here, is that I think there's a, there's a very simple way how we can approach a text as this one and understand it better. Because as Christians, we do want to understand God's Word the best way possible. We want to use the best tools that we can to understand the text. And we want to be most faithful to the text. What I want to suggest to you is that the Gospels are written in this just simple narrative style, as you might have learned in, in English class, where you have a setting, and there are characters that are introduced to you, there's uh, the background a little bit, and then the story takes off from there, there's a plot developing, there's usually a problem that arises, and there's and, and that goes to a point where there's this rising tension. Something is developing, something is up, and then it comes to a point of climax. And that's usually the most intense part of the story. And after that, you know, you have the following actions, or what, what I suggest to you is that's where we can find the teaching lesson in, in our text, in these narratives. But we also want to make sure that, that we get that climax right. We want to make sure that we read the text, that we're faithful to the text, and we, that we understand it correctly. And so our text tonight, Matthew 9, I think is a very good example of reading the Gospels in this way. And when we do read it this way, I think we will see that this text is teaching us that Jesus, as the Son of Man, has the authority to forgive sins. And what we'll also see is we'll see why why Jesus is even healing anybody. What, what are all these healing stories about that we read in the Gospels? And then lastly, we'll see what this text is calling us to do. How is the crowd responding? How are, how are the people involved responding? And so as you look in the text in verse 1, that's where we see the setting of this text. It talks about Jesus getting into a boat and crossing over into his own city. And the previous story tells us where he was. He was in the area that is known as the Gadarenes, or also known as Gerasenes. And he casts out demons in that city, and they go into a herd of pigs and jump off a cliff and drown in the, in the sea, and, and the people are angry at Jesus, and they ask him to leave. And that's where the story picks up. Jesus has just left that city, and he's going across to his own city, which in this case is Capernaum, as we learned in, uh, in chapter 4, 13. And then chapter, in verse 2, excuse me, goes on where it says, And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And so that's where you, where you see that story is developing. There, there's something is happening in the story. Something is going on. And we're very familiar with the story, especially the accounts in, in Mark and Luke that are a lot more vivid in their detail. It tell, as I mentioned before, it, it talks about these friends that bring this man who is a paralytic and they bring him and they go on the roof because there are so many people that they can't get to Jesus. Go on the roof, they tear open the roof and they, they, put him, and they let him down in the stretcher. But, but Matthew doesn't tell us about all these details. But, but what he does mention is he tells us that Jesus... Um, that Jesus sees their faith in verse 2. It says, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic. And I think just the fact that these men would bring a paralytic to Jesus already shows they have, they have some sort of faith in Jesus. They've, some, they've heard about Jesus, 
as we read, as we, um, in, the, in the passage I read earlier in, in chapter 4, 23, that's where it also talks about the fame of Jesus spreading. And that's probably how these people knew. And so they bring their, their friend and this man to Jesus. And that already shows that they have some sort of faith in Jesus. And so it's very obvious that they have faith in him coming to him. And then Jesus responds to this group of men bringing this paralytic by saying, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. And he responds in a very personal way. He says, Take heart, my son. He's encouraging him. This man lying on the stretcher, he's paralyzed. That is very discouraging, I can imagine, for a man living in the first century. And he has these friends who have to carry him everywhere. And he says, Take heart, my son. So he's encouraging to him. But then he says, your sins are forgiven. And Jesus says this. We could also, um, because it is in the, in the present tense, it's this idea that this is happening right now. Your sins are being forgiven at this very moment. That's what Jesus is telling him. But when we read this, we wonder, what, what does this have to do with the sickness? Isn't this man paralyzed? Jesus, you're the man who can heal all these sicknesses, all these illnesses. What are you doing? Why are you talking about forgiveness of sins? You're supposed to take this man, you're supposed to touch him and heal him. That's why we came to you. But in the first century, there was a, a very close connection between sickness and sin. The Bible, even in 1 Corinthians and in John 5, talks about this idea that there is a connection between sickness and sin. But then on the other hand, we read in John 9 that it specifically says, well, no, this man's sickness is not connected to sin. And so we see that there is an aspect in which there is a connection, but we can't just straight up say that every sickness, every illness, that's because you sinned. But rather we see that it's, it's like a case-by-case case situation. But also in the Old Testament we see that there, there is indeed a connection. So that's why I think Jesus brings out this connection here. And it asks us this question, well, what would you say in this situation? How would you say Sin and sickness are connected. Reading about this paralyzed man who, who has the response by Jesus that his sins are forgiven, how would, how, would you talk, how would you talk into this situation? What would you say? And how are these two connected? What I want to suggest to you is that with the fall, after God had made everything, everything was good, we know that Adam and Eve, the first people on earth, they sinned. They sinned against God. And on that day, on that day of the fall, death and sickness, illnesses, disease, pain, all these things that we know so well in our lives entered into the world. And so we can't go ahead and say that this man's sickness or this woman's illness are a result of sin. We're not able to say that. But I want to suggest to you that every sickness and illness is a result of sin with a capital S, with the fall. It's a result of the fall. The reason that there is illness, the reason that there are sicknesses in this world is because of the first sin that Adam and Eve committed. 
And also what sicknesses do, they remind us that there's something wrong in this world. Something is not right. Something is broken in this world. And it also shows us that we're not strictly spiritual beings. We're not beings that, that can just you know, disregard the fact that we are in a physical body. God has created us in a physical body, and He has created us with a soul. So there, there are both, and we are holistic beings. And I think naturally as people everywhere, we all long for the day on which there will be an end of this. There will be an end of all these sufferings, all these sicknesses, all this pain. But we'll return to this, uh, this idea of, of sickness and, and how it is connected to forgiveness in a little bit. Let's go on in verse 3 where we see the response to what Jesus had, had just said. Where the text says that there were some scribes who said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. So these are people that are religious authorities. These are scribes. They know the Old Testament well. They are representatives of the Jewish faith. And here they are, and they say that Jesus is blaspheming. And I think the reason for that, that they are troubled, is probably because he... You think about the Old Testament and how there was a sacrificial system and it had to bring, you had to bring a sacrifice for the atonement of your sins. And here's Jesus without any atonement made, without any sacrifices given. And here he comes and he says, your sins are forgiven. So that must have troubled them. But also, well, I think it's helpful to look in Mark chapter 2, verse 7, where it says, the response is, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so, what Jesus is doing here, I think he's acting as more than just a mediator. Think about this idea that, that what the, the people in Mark, or the scribes and Pharisees in Mark are saying, they're saying, only God can forgive sins. And we read that in Isaiah 43, 25, and also in Daniel 9, verse 9, it's very clear that in the Old Testament we know God is the only source of forgiveness. He's the only one who can forgive. But what Jesus is doing here, He is acting as the channel of forgiveness. And what they're accusing Him of here, blasphemy, is that blasphemy in this context, would have meant that, that Jesus is speaking dishonorable about God or against God's people. And also note that Jesus is accused of blaspheming in other places, like John 10, 33, where they say, where it says the Jews answered him by saying, it is not for good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, Make yourself God. And in Matthew 26, we also learn that it is on the accusation of blasphemy that Jesus is actually crucified. That's the accusation they have against Jesus. But also I think that the, the fact that the scribes are upset here shows us that what Jesus is doing here is more than just declaring God's forgiveness. Because some people would read this text not wanting to acknowledge that what Jesus is doing, he is actually the channel of forgiveness. 
But they would say, well, Jesus is just saying God is the one forgiving you. He's just a mediator. He's just the one speaking to this man what God had revealed. So they want to take away from what Jesus is actually doing here. But this response by the, by the scribes shows us that's not what's going on. If Jesus was simply speaking a truth that every person on earth could speak to another man or another woman, they wouldn't be so upset with him. But they know what Jesus is doing here. Therefore, they call him a blasphemer. And they're upset with him because they know that what, God, uh, what Jesus is doing here is he is claiming that he has indeed the authority to forgive sins. And that's only given to God, that authority. And then in verse 4, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Why do you think evil in your hearts? And so, I think that shows us, um, on the one hand, that Jesus is aware of what, what's going on. He knows their thoughts, so you know, that could point us to the fact that Jesus is divine. He has divine attributes. He knows what, what they're saying. But it could also just refer to the fact that you know, he saw them over there and they were talking. Maybe one of them even said it out loud. And, and he, just, he just knew what was going on and how they were responding. And then in verse 5 then, so we see, as I mentioned here, we, we see the plot developing. We see this tension rising and you specifically see it in verse 5 where Jesus now, in response to what they had said to him, tells them, For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? And so Jesus is putting these two next to each other, and if you think about it at face value, it's really easy to say both of these. I could say to somebody, your sins are forgiven. And I could turn around and say to another person, rise and walk. But that's not what Jesus means here, not the literal idea of speaking these words. That is easy to say. But what Jesus is showing them here is, I can say your sins are forgiven, and there's no way for you to prove that that happened or didn't happen. If Jesus declares this man's sins to be forgiven, there's no way that these people on earth in their, in, in their human form could ever find out whether this was true or not. But if Jesus tells this man, rise and walk, well, they'll be able to see. They'll be able to see, well, is he really able to do that? So if you think about it that way, you'll see it's, it is much harder to say rise and walk because imminently or immediately you will see, is there a result or not? And so that's what Jesus is doing. And obviously, the answer is, what is much easier to say your sins are forgiven? Because we don't know. But it is much more difficult to say rise and walk because we'll know if he responds or if he doesn't. And then in verse 6, I think that is then where we have the climax of the story. And that's, I think, where we really see the main point of this passage, that Jesus has the authority on earth to forgive sins because Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And so Jesus here uses this interesting term, son of man. And even though it can refer to just human beings, 
I don't think that's what he's doing here. I don't think he is simply saying human being, but rather he is using this term that everybody knows at the time. Everybody would have known what he means when he says that you may know that the Son of Man has authority. And that's a little bit, when you think about terms and cultures, that they are a generic term, but everybody knows what they refer to. So, for example, if you hear the term or the phrase, the Great War, historians and, and, and people would know that that is referring to World War I. So, a lot of wars have been great, and you can say, well, there was a great war, and you might just be referring to, to another war in the world, but if you say, well, that was the Great War, that's what people mean, is they're referring to World War I as the Great War. And so even though Jesus is using a, a general term that means human being, he's using it in a way that the audience would have known, well, he is not just talking about any man, he's talking about the Son of Man. And if you would, you can turn to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, because that's where we'll find out, or we, where we find out about who the Son of Man is that Jesus is referring to here. So in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, the Bible says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So this is the passage that Jesus has in mind. This is the passage that comes to mind to the audience that hears Jesus talking about the Son of Man. And it's a term that Jesus uniquely uses for himself. So it is definitely a term that Jesus intentionally uses. And he, with one exception, is the only one in the Bible who ever calls himself that. And I think in this instant here, it is referring to the fact that Jesus is identifying with this future Son of Man. And there's even similar language in, in the passage that I just read in Daniel. It's talking about this dominion, you know, having this authority, in other words. So what Jesus is doing here, he is, he is talking about the Son of Man sparking the thought of this vision in Daniel. And then he is saying, authority, sparking the thought of this, this idea that this Son of Man will have dominion over all the earth. And in other places, when Jesus is referring to the Son of Man, uh, to the Son of Man's authority, he's talking about the Son of Man having authority over the Sabbath, over the law, over demons, sickness, that he is inaugurating the kingdom, and that he will be at the final judgment. And here, in this case, in our text, we see that it's referring to Jesus being that son of man that is promised and prophesied in Daniel. He also has the authority to forgive sins. And Jesus... Well, as we read, as, if we read on in Matthew, we see a lot more to the story of Jesus than just him coming to earth and performing miracles and healing people. But what we'll see in the rest of Matthew is that Jesus 
will do a much greater work. We see that Jesus will go to Jerusalem and He will suffer. We see that Jesus will go to Jerusalem and He will be put on a Roman cross. He will hang on a cross and suffer there and die for the forgiveness of sins. And then after He is put into the tomb, on the third day, He will rise again, defeating death. And so that's what we see. Jesus has this authority. He's claiming this authority right here But we can see the story develop in the book of Matthew where Jesus finishes up this work, finalizing this claim to authority to forgive sins because he does go to the cross and he does um, enable people to to, to come to God and to be reconciled with him through the forgiveness of sins. And so when we look at this text and when we wonder what what is this mean to me? Why is this important to me? It's because what Jesus does here, he's claiming that he he can forgive sins. And later, as I mentioned, he will show that he really did what was necessary on the cross to have this kind of claim made. And we also see that everything on this earth is under his authority. And everything on this earth is, is given to Jesus in a, in, under his authority. And that is important to us because Jesus, as I mentioned before, he will be at the last judgment. And that's the, that's the question you should ask yourself tonight is, if the man who has all authority on earth and in heaven, who has all the authority over everything that there is, is coming back to judge everything, Where am I going to be? What what is my relationship to this sovereign ruler of the universe? Are you in union with him? Are you in a personal relationship with Jesus? Or are you distant from him? Are you maybe like the crowd that just likes to listen in from, from the back of the room, but you're not willing to respond to these claims? And then in verse 7, we see that indeed it does come true that the man rises and goes home just like Jesus had commanded him. And so, whenever we read these healing stories, whenever we read about Jesus healing anybody, it pops the question, why is Jesus healing anybody? Why do we read so many stories about Jesus healing people on earth? What's that all about? Because if you think about this man, I'm sure that in the following years of his life, he got sick again. If you think about Jesus who raised raised Lazarus from the dead, think about Lazarus at the end of his life when he just, he died. And so, what is that all about? If, If Jesus heals somebody that gets sick again, he raises somebody from the dead who dies. Why would you heal anybody at all, Jesus? And that's, I think, something we, we, can, we can miss easily is that these healings of Jesus are not showing us something ultimate. They're not something finished in and of themselves, but rather they point us towards something. In Isaiah 35, 
verses 5 and 6, Isaiah is talking about a day that will come in the future. And the text says, And the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf, deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water, in the haunt of jackals where they lie down, and the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And there are several other passages in Isaiah speaking of similar realities. And just a couple chapters over from our text in Matthew 11, we have the disciples of John coming to Jesus, and they're, they're tasked by John to ask Jesus if he is the real Messiah, if he is the Savior, or if they should wait for another. And in Matthew 11, uh, 2 through 6, we read the story. And in verse 4, Jesus replies to their question. He says, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. So, when we then read about these healing stories, when we read about these things that Jesus does, they should remind us of these texts that the one I read to you in Isaiah 35, and then there are others, as I mentioned. They are pointing us to this glorious day in the future. They're pointing us to a day on which God will make all things new. It talks about all these sicknesses being healed, how the deaf will hear again, how the, the lame will leap like a deer. That's a day that is still to come, even today. And in Jeremiah 31, also talking about this future day, that's where we also read about the promise that there will be forgiveness of sins. And so that's, I think, where we see this connection. We, on the one hand, we have all these sicknesses and illnesses being healed. On the other hand, in Jeremiah, we have this, this fact that God will forgive sins so that's, I think, where we come back to what I was uh, talking about in verse 2, this idea of sickness and sin being in connection. And we see that healing and forgiveness are closely connected because Jesus is reversing the curse of sin. He is reversing the curse of the fall. And He is showing us that the kingdom of God has begun. And for us, that means then that these healings, when we read about them, they point us towards a greater day. They point us to a greater eternal reality. And they remind us, as I mentioned, the sick who are healed by Jesus will get sick again. That means that we shouldn't rest in healing. We shouldn't put our hope in healing, but rather we should put a hope in that future day that will come when God will restore all things, when He will restore creation, when He will fix everything that's broken. I think that is where these healings point us. That's our, our ultimate hope. And I've, just over the last six months, experienced just a, the, the dramatic difference between a friend of mine who who had a loved one diagnosed with cancer. And his response was all about 
the great doctors that are in the city and that they're hopeful and that, you know, he knows that, you know, his loved one will fight and, you know, they will, they will get through this. And, and that was kind of the, the, the end of the story. And then I've been blessed, as many of you, to see Robert suffering so well. And him even telling me that that's not where his hope is. His hope and every Christian's hope should be in that future day when everything will be restored. It's not going to be in a temporary healing, even though we should pray for these healings and we we hope for God and we hope for the best. So I don't want to say that we, we don't ever pray for healing. We don't care about sickness. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying as we pray for, for these healings, as we pray for loved ones who are sick, we should ask ourselves, is my ultimate hope for this loved one, is my ultimate hope for myself that I just get through this sickness? Or is my ultimate hope that no matter what happens to me here, no matter how sick I get and what happens, I know there will be a day I know that Isaiah and Jeremiah and even here Jesus are all pointing me towards that wonderful day when God will restore all things. But also know, as I was telling you about this completed work of Jesus on the cross, is that that future hope is not offered to just anybody and not just everybody. But that future hope is for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, who died on the cross for their sins. And then look with me in verse 8, where we see the response of the crowds who saw it, and it says that they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. So we see that the crowd is amazed. It says even that they were fearful, they were afraid. And what I think this this means, that that they were, it says that they glorified God, God who had given such authority to men. I think this is referring to a general statement that they were looking at Jesus, who, who was a man, who was fully man and fully God, but they were seeing him as this man, and they were thinking, well, God has given such authority to men. And so, I don't think this is referring to the fact that men now have the authority to go around and forgive sins however they please, wherever they want to, but rather, this is saying, look, mere men have the authority to do that, and that is talking about Jesus. And then, as I mentioned before, we want to look at how the crowd responds. We want to look at what they do Because that is the point where the text is just asking us, how do you respond? How would you respond to Jesus who performs this miracle, who heals this man and claims that he has authority on earth to forgive sins? And in the following story, in verses 9 and following, there we see a story that I think points us towards the fact or towards the idea of how we should respond. It's, it's the calling of Matthew. When Jesus goes by the tax booth and he says, follow me, and Matthew gets up and he follows him. And I think what, what this text is, is calling us to do is look at Jesus. He is the man who came 
And he has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And later in Matthew, we see how he accomplishes that on the cross. Follow this man. Follow Jesus. Be faithful to him. And so, I want to ask you, if you, when you hear about Jesus, when you see stories about Jesus, do you see him as this son of man? Promised or prophesied in Daniel, the Son of Man who would have all authority over everything and who is also able to forgive sins. And is He the one that you put your hope in? No matter what your circumstances in life might be, no matter how rough and how difficult it gets. I think this text is calling us to respond in faith. It's calling those who don't trust Jesus, if you don't trust Jesus as your personal Savior, this text is saying, look, He is your only hope. He is the only one who has the authority to forgive sins. Believe in Him and follow Him. And then secondly, I think it is calling us to respond not only in faith, but also with hope in the future restoration. To have our minds heavenly fixed that no matter what is going on in our lives, ultimately, we look to Jesus. Ultimately, we look to God, and we know He will make it right. He will make all things good, and He will heal all the sicknesses and diseases and all the pain and suffering in our world.